Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Hopes fade for survivors as more than 20,000 people are confirmed dead in the Turkey-Syria earthquakes and rescue efforts enter a fourth night. And I'm here in Brussels in front of the European Parliament, where earlier today Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a historic address. His asks, more weapons, more aid, and quicker ascension to the EU. Europe will always be and remain Europe as long as we're together. As long as we take care of our Europe. As long as we take care of the European way of life. And later, all the other big news stories of the day, including Bertie Ahern's return to the Fianna Fáil fold. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. in this week's devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has now passed the 20,000 mark. The United Nations has described the tragedy as the biggest natural disaster of recent times. Hopes are now fading of finding more survivors as rescue efforts enter a fourth night there. And later on in the show, we will have a report from Trent Murray, who's on the field in Turkey and close to the quake site. Now, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has said that his country is defending the European way of life in its war with Russia, addressing the European Parliament today. Mr Zelensky told leaders that Russia wants to destroy the European way of life while appealing for support. We will be crossing to Kira Doherty in Brussels shortly. But first, Rory Carroll takes a look at President Zelensky's day. An historic address, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, arrived into the European Parliament to rapturous applause. Thanking politicians and the people of Europe, Mr Zelensky said his country's fight was for the protection of European values. We are not going back in front of the enemy. We are defending ourselves. We are not losing time. We are changing ourselves. We are changing things. Europe will always be and remain Europe as long as we're together. As long as we take care of our Europe. As long as we take care of the European way of life. This in-person visit comes as the EU Council also met to discuss ongoing issues with migration as an influx of Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war heaps pressure on EU countries. President Zelensky's visit to Brussels comes at the end of a whirlwind European tour, all in a bid to gain support and weapons for his country's fight against Russia. Addressing a press conference this afternoon, he reiterated his country's commitment to become part of the European Union. But despite the show of support from EU leaders today, that's not going to happen before the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of this month. Rory Carroll, Virgin Media News. 
Well, as I said, I am here in Brussels in front of the European Parliament building in darkness now, but that's certainly not the way it was at 11 a.m. local time today when President Zelensky made his address, his historic address to the European Parliament. This is actually the second time, only the second time, that he has left Ukraine since the war began almost a year ago, the first to address the Houses of Congress in the United States. It's part of a whistle-stop tour of Europe. He was in London, in Paris, and now here in Brussels. But amid all of the pomp and the ceremony and the fanfare today, and it really was quite incredible to watch, he had a very clear and unambiguous statement. Help us to help you. I am joined now for more uh, on this by Rosie Burchard, a Brussels correspondent. You're very welcome to the programme, uh, Rosie, because I know it's been an incredibly long day for everybody here. Let's talk about the atmosphere here today. Let's talk about the reception that Valensky received. It really was something to behold, wasn't it? It was nothing short of a hero's welcome when President Zelensky touched down here in Brussels. There was literal fanfare and President Michel, the European Council president, greeted him with the words, welcome home. He received standing ovations here in the European Parliament and pretty soon he was standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder with the 27 EU leaders. But make no mistake, this was a man on a mission. He is trying to convert those handshakes, those smiles into actions. And he said he simply doesn't have a choice. He has to go back to citizens in Ukraine without empty hands, with something to offer them. He has to go back with results, he says. And he arrived here today. I mean, the place was absolutely thronged, not only with MEPs, but people who work around the European Parliament, the European offices with journalists. I mean, you really couldn't get room in there, could you? There was a huge turnout and a huge security detail, a major security operation. And questions really up until the moment he arrived, if he would be in in Brussels today. It was a major security operation because... For security reasons, they could not unveil to us officially whether or not President Zelensky indeed would be here. Of course, it was a surprise when he arrived in London yesterday, a surprise again when he arrived in Paris. There were all sorts of measures, the freezes on entries to buildings, roads closed off, and of course that can make life difficult for average citizens here in Brussels. But there was also a big gathering of Ukrainian refugees living here in Belgium turning out to say please support our president of course please support us and our people at home and not least lots of women whose husbands are in Ukraine and cannot leave under martial law so a big showing here in Brussels and yes lots of fanfare and something I've really never seen the like of. Yeah and as always Zelensky dressed in his green army fatigues and a casual top really at odds with the formality of the European Union but as if to say I think I am here I'm coming straight from the battlefield I am a representative of the Ukrainian people and their fight for freedom. Absolutely, and I think that was really came through strongly in his message here. You might have thought he would come with a big wish list of weapons, but in fact, what he did, at least in that address to the European Parliament, was to try and bring everyone into this situation and say that Ukrainians are fighting not just for sovereignty, not just for their territory, but for Europe, for all of Europe. And he listed a whole list of professions saying, drivers, doctors, diplomats, office workers, all of you listen to us and be aware that you can also contribute to this. So really it was a, he sort of framed Ukraine as a bulwark protecting the rest of the European Union and he said Ukrainian soldiers are are really fighting to protect European values. Yeah and in fairness the 
European Parliament president today said, your future is in Europe. And that was one of his asks when he was here today, wasn't it? Uh, I suppose an accelerated membership of the European Union. It also led to one of the few light-hearted moments here today. Well, Brussels holds the key to an ambition that Ukraine holds very dear, and that is one day joining the European Union, not just joining for a family photo at a summit like this exceptionally, but actually having a permanent seat at the table here. And you'll remember last year, 2022, Ukraine was granted candidate status. Now Zelensky wants to set the date. He says he would like negotiations, formal talks on joining the EU to start already this year. And he, at one point in the press conference, started speaking in English and he said, you know, when I say this year, I mean this year, 2023. And there was a, a moment of laughter. And you remember, this is a comedian. This is a former comedian. And it was an interesting way of communicating because President Michel was forced to sort of laugh it off and say, well, we need unanimity. And I think that brings me to the point that there is some big hurdle still for Ukraine to jump. First of all, in order to become eligible for membership of the European Union, lots of reforms need to be undertaken, curbs on corruption. But then, of course, there's the political question that Ukraine would need unanimous backing and generally let's not forget this is a process that can take years if not decades there are some other countries patiently waiting in the eu's candidate status waiting room north macedonia has been a candidate since 2005. Okay. all right thanks as always we'll leave it there uh, for now rosie burchard well there was a series of bilateral meetings across the afternoon uh, with the leaders of the european union one of those was our own taoiseach uh, leo Varadkar. here's what he had to say just had a uh, good meeting with President Zelensky. Um, he's been meeting uh, EU Prime Ministers in small groups uh, throughout the day. Um, so uh, it was an opportunity for me to reaffirm um, Ireland's support for Ukraine, uh, that we will uh, stand with them for as long as it takes, uh, support them in their efforts to uh, secure their uh, independence, their democracy, their European path, their territorial integrity, and assure them that Ireland will continue to help Ukraine uh, politically um, through uh, financial support, humanitarian efforts, uh, and of course, um, non-lethal military aid as well. Uh, and he had uh, a list of things uh, that he'd like us to provide in terms of equipment. Uh, some of it is uh, weapons, which of course we can provide, but most of it is um, non-lethal equipment. And I'll be taking that home to Ireland uh, tomorrow and be talking to the Defence Forces in Atosh, and we'll see what we can do. I'm joined now by Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey and from Fianna Foil MEP Billy Kelleher. You're both very welcome uh, to the programme. I'm going to start with you, Colin. What exactly do you think Ireland could do now to support Ukraine further? What's realistic at this point? Well, there's plenty of things we can do. We can do all sorts of things in, in let's say, supporting it. In it's, for instance, it's electricity grid. There's, there's critical materials needed for its electricity grid. A, the like of water supplies, the like of different supply of blood, and different things like that that we can do that aren't necessarily military capability. But there are many humanitarian efforts we can make as well. So certainly, there's a number of different issues we can we can address. But I think in the broader sense, for two into the future, like Ireland always has a, a capability around cyber security, and I think that's something that we we have to look into the future where we actually could play a part like that and that in a way doesn't necessarily impact on our neutrality. How does President Zelensky respond when he asks somebody like our Taoiseach for military aid and our Taoiseach responds we cannot do that we are a neutral country what's his reaction to that? I think he's happy that the 27 countries are working in unison and everyone is working together clearly Ireland doesn't have the military capability to offer support in that way but it can offer, offer support in other ways and relying more on the likes of France or Germany that have the military capability and it's them that will step forward in relation to that. I think Ireland can play its part in so many other ways.
Um, did you get any sense today, because one of the other big asks, Billy Keller, outside this accelerated membership of the EU, is for further military weapons, in particular uh, fighter jets. He was quite explicit about that when he uh, made his address in Westminster yesterday. Not quite as explicit here, but um, certainly was referenced by Ursula von der Leyen. And she said, this is not a decision for Europe or the European Union. This is a decision for the individual member states. How do you feel the member states that could respond should respond to that request? Well, primarily that would be a matter for NATO who are supporting Ukraine in military efforts. I mean, there's no doubt the European Union does not have a military uh, presence uh, in Ukraine. Uh, they are countries who are individually supporting Ukraine. Mm. The, the United States, the UK and France, for example, would have uh, air capability. And that is something that, you know, I think is being considered. Uh, certainly, I would be concerned about providing weapons that could be used to attack Russian soil. But certainly, I think they should get what weaponry they need to ensure that they can push the Russians out of the occupied territories so would you in have Eastern Ukraine. Would you Eastern have concerns Ukraine. then about sending something like fighter jets, training their pilots to dry or to uh, fly these um, vehicles because it could be seen as sort of an acceleration of the, of the war at this point? Well look, the escalation started last year when uh, Russia sent in 200,000 men uh, into Ukraine. That's when the escalation started. Uh, I'd like to see this war come to an end as quickly as possible. The sooner that they have the equipment to do that, the better for everybody. But we certainly don't want to see a situation where there could be a creeping effect, in my view, that would allow military capability to take the war into Russia itself. I think that would be an escalation beyond what would be required and could have serious consequences. OK. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen also spoke today in that press conference about a tenth round of sanctions uh, against Russia. What might they include? Well, I mean, they're looking at the areas of technology primarily, and that is a key area where we really have to target and hone in uh, on, on Russian capabilities. Uh, at the moment, you know, we've had nine rounds of sanctions. Some have been effective, but I think overall they are beginning to have an effect, a financial effect on the Russian economy, and they are beginning to slow down Russia's capability in manufacturing high-end missiles, for example. So certainly in the area of high-end technologies, uh, semiconductors, uh, th those particular areas that are key in terms of developing those are, and making that equipment that is so essential from the point of view of uh, missiles uh, that Russia has been using to date. There was a piece in there, I think it was the Business Post of the weekend, uh, Colin Markey, about Irish trade with Russia, our exports are from Russia and really it was relatively healthy in 2022. I think our exports remained the same and I think our imports were only down by a, around a third. Is that enough? I think we have to make sure we can do all, all we can in relation to sanctions and it's not just direct trade with Russia. It's also, if you like, three-point trade where it likes to somewhere like India where Russia might trade with India and then that, that come into, by the back door into Europe. So certainly there is more that can be done and I think we have to continue to squeeze that economic, the economic sanctions that will squeeze the military machine. Definitely, for me, there's more can be done and indeed from an Irish perspective, there's no way we should stand and, and tolerate Irish trade into Russia uh, to allow, if you like, that, that to be used as part of a military capability. And so the fact that the trade with Russia remained relatively stable, relatively good for last year. I would be disappointed with that. I think we have to look at the, the, the to make sure that the, the sanctions aren't just a name. One of the things about the, the, the trade is a lot of, while there was trade, the money didn't change hands. The money, like the, the trade passed, but, but the actual finance remained outside of Russia. So while, some, in some cases, while there was trade, uh, ultimately the revenue didn't
didn't didn't land, if you like, in the in the Russian economy. So that that is probably that does, if you like, reduce the impact to some degree. But still, I think there's more can be done in that regard. Okay. Uh, Billy Callagher, uh, we spoke with Rosie earlier, and I'm sure the viewers at home saw some of the footage of President Zelensky arriving here at the European Parliament and um, going over to the European Council. The reception that he received, the standing ovations, the round of applause, the support from the European Union that said, "We will be with you until the end." But is there any sense behind the scenes, Billy Callagher, that a year into this war, a little bit of weariness is creeping in? Well, look, I mean, President Zelensky's on a tour. He was in the United States some time ago. He was in the UK yesterday, France this morning, and here today. I was in Kiev twice since the war started. Uh, the number of uh, European Union flags unfurled all across the various cities. The Ukraine is passionate about uh, its membership of the European Union. And likewise, we have to be supportive of Ukraine in its hour of need. And certainly, you know, this was symbolic, but it was also significant and important from the point of view of we saying to Ukraine, we stand with you, and giving the Ukrainians uh, the hope and the belief that they can also become a member of this institution and of what the European Union stands for because that's what their soldiers are dying for as I speak to you now. All right, we're going to leave it there but Colin Markey and Billy Keller, thank you both for joining us. Now, let's go back to you, Claire, in studio. Kira, thank you for that. Well, I'm joined here by Barrow Media political correspondent Sean Defoe, journalist Michael O'Regan and Spin 1038 presenter Emma Nolan. You're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, a big day over in Brussels and a big day for the UK yesterday. Um, Zelensky on this whirlwind uh, tour. Uh, on this, I mean, key to that, there's some, there's some key aims really that he's looking for. Um, you know, the backdrop, the EU backdrop is really important to Vladimir Zelensky. A bottom line here is he would love to see Ukraine in the EU as well as getting all the military support that he's been asking for from both Britain and Europe. Yeah, and I think that was his big pitch. Like, he is a showman at the end of it. You know, he was an entertainer before he was the president. In fact, he played a fictional president before he was ever the real president. And you can see that with the cargo fatigues that were being talked about there. But also in when he was dressing the UK Parliament, he handed the helmet of a fighter pilot to the Speaker of the Parliament and said, this is from the front lines. This is signed by one of the guys who wants one of your jets to help them continue to defend his country. And even today, when he was sharing a podium, Ursula von der Leyen on his left, Charles Michel on his right, and he said to them, one of the few moments that he spoke in English, we need EU membership and it needs to happen this year, 2023. Mm not in the future, not some date that, you know, Europe wants to kick it out. And that, that's going to be a problem. It's that's problem not really likely override. to happen, not, is it? It's not going to happen at all because there is a process that has to be go through. Of course, there is when you're accepting people into a group like the EU. But he's saying you need to fast track it and you need to give us more help because I think there is a sense mm. from Zelensky and from others that while the support that's there isn't wavering, it isn't going any further and what he needs is further. Yeah, and certainly... Um, uh, Ukraine would like to be within the EU, but also these calls, Michael, that he's making around fighter jets and increased armaments for the country. And Kira touched on it there when she was asking Billy, Billly Kelleher about it, about the potential, I suppose, consequences this would have. Yeah, Rishi Sunak saying yesterday, you know, nothing is off the table in this regard when, you know, uh, Zelensky made his plea there for fighter jets. And, and it was the same thing um, in Brussels again today, saying, we need those fighter jets if we are to defeat Russia, who go, who go against all these European values, really clearly making that, that play. But it would signify an escalation and drag us further into war. It would, and it's clear that he's getting moral support in abundance, but uh, he's looking for weapons. 
And Macron was saying the same thing, you know, this will be considered without giving a commitment. Uh, and he's a man obviously under enormous pressure and he's looking for weapons, he's fighting a war. Uh, even fast-tracking, you know, EU membership, uh, which is not on. Uh, our, from our point of view, I think the Taoiseach summed it up there, actually. Uh, he said we'd give, uh, you know, we'd help with EU membership, uh, we'd give financial support, humanitarian efforts, and, he used the phrase, non-lethal military aid. Mm. So that's where Ireland stands because of its uh, That's kind of helping of to fuel the tanks and all that kind of thing while not actually supplying... Uh, yeah, the, the actual themselves. weapons, weaponry, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Emma, uh, on all of this as well, um, Ireland's neutrality, again, being called into question, I guess, because of this strong stance from Europe, at least in words, that, you know, fighter jets, we want to support, we want to do all of that, and whether, you know, Ireland is again at the sidelines of that. But I, I think, you know, for the most part, the Taoiseach seems to have, having had that sort of discussion, has come down on the side of well, we must remain neutral. We probably don't have a choice because it requires huge infrastructural change and money and resources in this country to be anything other than that. Totally understand what you mean. And I think as well, it's one of those things where obviously it's human nature to want to help the vulnerable and to help people, you know what I mean? Like, and, you know, inside you, you're like, you know, we should really step up and help in any way we can. But you have to remember that we have been a neutral country. You know what I mean? We are a neutral country and starting to kind of mess on that line. It's not something that we, we can do in that way. So like you said, and as Patishok said, in, in a non-weaponry non way, um, to keep that aid going as much as we possibly can. Yeah, and Emma, you know, like at the heart of all this is a huge humanitarian disaster that's been unfolding for the past year. Um, and when we, we, we think about all of this, it's actually been our humanitarian response there that is also, I suppose, coming, on, coming under pressure mm -hmm. um, as Europe uh, grapples with what, what to do about this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, that human humanitarian crisis wor worsening even, you know, so much more starkly across Syria and Turkey over the last few days, in itself. Mm. Um, and, you know, aid sp spreading far and wide. But I guess it really is on all of us to remember that just because it might not make the same headlines as it did a year ago when the, say, war in Ukraine took off, mm. that it's, it's still happening. And as Sean mentioned, when it comes to Zelensky today in Brussels, um, handing over the helmets, and, and these are people who are dying today still in Ukraine. Mm. So... It's just as important to keep that stamina and that momentum up in terms of what we're doing in terms of um, our charity workers. OK, well, look, there we'll take a break. My panel will be staying on with me. After the break, we'll be getting an update on the devastating earthquake in Turkey. We'll also be back to Brussels too, so do stay with us. Welcome back. Let's go back over to Kira in Brussels now, where other big themes like migration came up at today's EU Leaders Summit. Kira. Thanks, Claire. I'm joined by a political Suzanne Lynch and by Peter Burke, the Minister for European Affairs. You're both very welcome to the programme. Suzanne, you would have actually been forgiven for forgetting that there was a summit on today and it was the first time since 2018 that the EU Council met to reassess reassess rather our migration policy uh, why now yeah you're right i mean the, today was all about president zelensky really he was here at the parliament at the council but migration was the big topic
topic uh, on the debate. And actually, as we speak here, EU leaders are still discussing this. It's, we're hearing it's, it's quite an over and back in the, in the discussion. Um, the reason this was put on the agenda is that some countries have been pushing for it, particularly Austria. They, that country said it's been getting a lot of migrants in through the Western Balkans, in through Serbia, and that it can't basically cope with this. So they have been leading the charge to get the EU Council to deal with this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, and in one way, somebody said, uh, one of the ambassadors said ahead of the meeting that they didn't really want to get this topic on the agenda because it's so divisive. They're worried that it's going to open up a whole kind of can of worms because this for years, since the refugee crisis back in 2014, 2015, the EU has not really been able to get its common asylum and migration policy together. And where else, Suzanne, are there points of division, issues of division between the member states? Well, I think there's long-running divisions between countries who are on the front line of migration. So countries like Italy and Greece, who by their geography obviously are the first port of entry for a lot of migrants. And then you have countries like Germany and the Netherlands who get what they call secondary migration. People who arrive in Italy and Greece and then want to move north uh, where they feel like they might get a better job and better benefits etc. Um, so we've kind of had a debate here for years about the word solidarity. Should other countries help Italy and, and Greece and others to take more uh, migrants um, but there really has been a resistance to that and a lot of East European countries, countries like Hungary, Poland traditionally have been really against this. So we're back to those old debates now but today I think the debate is a bit more shifting to the right. There's a lot more talk about um, you know, not quite funding for border walls but like strengthening the borders, making sure uh, people who come to Europe who don't have the right to asylum then go back to their home country. So who's pushing that? 
Well, I mean, at this stage, countries in the east, like Hungary, for example, Austria, they're really pushing this. Uh, and, and they're saying, resisting it, I suppose? Well, there'd be more. Ireland would be a little bit more on the liberal side. We would, a lot of the Nordics over the years would have been more liberal. And Germany as well, to an extent. We're hearing reports now that the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, during this private meeting is going on, is talking about, you know, let's not start building walls. Uh, so they're worried about this idea of fortress Europe. And actually, the European Commission, even though they're not centrally involved in this, Ursula von der Leyen has said before, we don't want EU funds to you know, used to be building walls and fences. So, um, but I do think that the, the debate has generally gone a bit to the right and that people want more tougher measures on migration. So how difficult do you think, given the fact that the meeting is ongoing, might even go into tomorrow, how difficult will it be to get unanimity? I think it will be very difficult and it's going to be kind of carrot and stick and giving, they're, they're literally drafting texts, like some people want to say, well, let's, you know, what do we do about... Um, countries uh, that whose, whose uh, citizens come to Europe and they refuse asylum and they don't take them back, should we withhold funding for them? Should we withhold development aid for them? Uh, people, you know, countries like Ireland don't want that to happen. But they're talking about very strong measures potentially uh, to make these other countries, the countries of origin, more accountable. But look, I don't think we're going to get that major decision on that tonight. OK, um, Peter Burke, the Taoiseach was here today. He spoke uh, to media a little uh, earlier and he spoke about the need for fair firm and hard approach to the issue of migration. Is that the shift to the right that Suzanne was talking about? I think it was very clear in that that he was talking about hard on traffickers those who traffic migrants into the country who take advantage of them and who really determine the policy of who gets into the EU we don't want that to happen. What he was saying very clearly is that we need a fair policy that the most vulnerable are protected because there are many vulnerable migrants coming from very oppressive regimes that really have to be protected and deserve shelter and also we need a mechanism that gives speedy resolutions to someone who's been adjudicated for in relation to the right to remain in the state and that has to be done in a more speedier manner than we are doing. Even but I though think there's been real concerns expressed by the Refugee Council in Ireland that these sort of speedier decisions will mean that a lot of people perhaps won't have the opportunity to access the right legal advice for example. Well, I think when you have situations where uh, there's individuals coming into the country without documentation when you are required to have documentation on your flight path into your country and when you can't produce that there's a serious concern. So I think we need to really have a policy that's fair but very compassionate because one thing we're very clear as a country and I know from Ireland as an open economy you know we need to learn from our history and really ensure that we are providing basic shelter for people, very vulnerable people and get, ensure they get through and really that we are hard on traffickers and those who are trying to abuse the system, which is very important yeah, as well. Because I think in fairness, uh, Peter, there's a sense this week between the moves at home um, to put more guardy checking flights and checking the documentation of people coming in uh, from flights who will seek asylum in Ireland and this comment about firm, hard um, approach to migration, that the rhetoric is hardening a little bit uh, in government. I don't think so. I wouldn't agree with that, Kira. I think what we're saying is we need a fa fair system. Like, we have an exceptionally... Uh, good legal system by way of permits for people to come into this country into Ireland who want to work. We have a demand over the last year for 250,000 new jobs in our economy and obviously we need people to do all those services and to run our country as well. And that's why we have a very clear legal pathway to do that. So we want to avoid this uh, irregular... But it often doesn't work I suppose for people who are seeking asylum. Yeah. 
that's what I'm talking about. We have a legal pathway so for people who are looking to come in to work in our country. For those seeking asylum, obviously, we need to get the genuine vulnerable cases, give them the protection they need, give them the shelter they need and the services that they need. Uh, there will be a feeling, I think, that the government's response in the last couple of days is perhaps a, a reflex to the... The protests we have seen, the polls that we saw at the weekend in the Sunday papers, which suggested that you know over 50% of Irish people uh, thought that too many um, refugees have been taken into Ireland. Is that what the government is doing? No, I don't believe so. I think in terms of uh, Ukrainian citizens, we're providing huge support to many citizens coming in, almost over 70,000 who've availed of the temporary protection directive and also we have a significant increase in international protection applicants. But what we do need is a fair system to ensure that the most vulnerable get protected yeah. and, and that's what this is about. because the Taoiseach did say in the dial, I think yesterday that we need to be very careful about the language that we use when absolutely. we're talking about yeah, refugees and those seeking asylum and that we don't play into the far right and I wonder is his language today playing into the far right? It isn't because because he was very clear about protecting the most vulnerable, about tackling the root causes and really supporting countries of origin because if we don't get significant development aid in and uh, capital projects done in those countries, those oppressive regimes will get worse. We need to really tackle those root causes. I would also say, being from Mullingar and the last few weeks that we've had in Mullingar in relation to some very far-right uh, narratives and individuals coming down to our town in relation to uh, our local barracks where we have international protection applicants going to be there just for a few weeks before a more permanent uh, regime is brought forward for them in uh, in uh, temporary accommodation. I absolutely know uh, the narrative and how dangerous it can be. That's why I'm saying we need to protect the most vulnerable. We're a compassionate society. For every small number of people who are, you know, uprising and giving out, you have dozens of communities which really responded right. to the Ukrainian crisis and for international protection applicants as well. All right, back to uh, Suzanne finally. Do you think there will be agreement this evening? I can't see much agreement. It's a very divisive issue. Some of the issues you're describing in Ireland are happening all over Europe. But, you know, there is a, a challenge here that when you're talking about trying to help things in the country of origin, that's a long-term project. You know, it, the issue is um, when migrants, needy people are arriving to their shores, countries like Italy and Greece have been trying to deal with this for years and um, getting the most vulnerable people coming in through boats and um, desperately try arriving in their countries and they want more help from the rest of the EU and you re can really, you know, see their point of view on this. Um, so it's about trying to get that solidarity between EU countries and seeing it as a common you know, responsibility and a common approach rather than each country for its own. All right, we'll leave it there. Suzanne Lynch and Peter Burke, thank you so much for joining us. Back to you, Claire. Kira, thank you. Well, Sean, Michael and Emma are still here with me. And let's talk a little bit about what is being discussed at European level. But we heard time and time again, it's a really divisive topic and it's divisive here and it is divisive as we can see in Brussels, where they're not likely to come to any agreement on what should be done around migration. Um, but, you know, Michael, on this, what do you make of the Taoiseach's tone today? Because, like, we heard Peter Burke there saying, no, he was talking about being, you know, fair and firm and hard when it came to, to traffickers. But really, at the moment, I mean, it doesn't seem like there is much differentiation or it, there's much clarity on, on what way people are coming into the country and what the government's view is as a whole on the issue of migration, refugees and asylum seekers. Yeah, there's clearly a much sharper tone coming from the Taoiseach in this. The use of the word hard, I think he'll advised. Um, not a good word. Mm. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's in response to opinion polls showing that uh, 
the Irish people who are not racist, but, a, you know, a significant number of people thinking that there's only so many refugees we can take in. Also, the public meetings that have been taking place by people who have legitimate concerns, uh, infiltrated, of course, by the far right uh, and dismissed by the people, you know, gathering uh, here and there. And a feeling among some communities that they're doing more than others and that the burden is too high. Take Killarney, for instance, where uh, a lot of the hotels will want to revert to tourism post St. Patrick's Day. Mm. And they look at a building, just one, take example. They look at a building like the old Jury's Hotel in du Ballsbridge in Dublin 4, Mm -hmm. unoccupied, surely an ideal place for refugees. And that sense that uh, certainly along the west of the country that there are there are a lot more, you know, um, people being placed there than there are in other areas. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there, we've there's had a TDs that, from those counties yeah, there's expressing There's a feeling it's unfair. Yep. Um, notwithstanding that, uh, Sean, on all of this, it's also come down to Leo Varadkar and Roger O'Gorman both saying that there have been government failures now in communicating. They are acknowledging all of this. Now, whether communicating with a community makes any difference to a decision being made is another thing. It's also a really difficult thing to do at a time of emergency because you've got hundreds of people coming in every day and they need to be put somewhere. They need to be housed and they are coming in most often refugees from Ukraine but also from other places who are fleeing very serious disasters and fleeing persecution in their own country. And it was interesting that there's a slight difference between what Leo Varadkar and Roger Gorman was saying because Varadkar was saying people who rise here, you know, without their real documents or with fake documents and O'Gorman saying, well, in some cases, that's legitimate. If you have someone who's trying to flee Iran at the moment, a woman trying to flee Iran might need to do so under a fake document and get here to be safe. So a little bit of difference there in what they were both saying, but also both accepting that really the communication, even in instances where, say, the, the local community might not have a say in whether refugees are coming in, being able to say, look, they're coming in, but there's going to be a bit of investment here. There's going to be a bit of help. There's going to be a bit of community support. support. That hasn't been done. And in the absence of that messaging from the government, it's been infiltrated and taken over by those far-right actors and those few people who are racists in Ireland. I agree with Michael, it's not everybody. A lot of people are just concerned about their local area, but there are racists who are trying to take over the narrative and spin things a certain way, and the poor messaging from the government is allowing them to do that. OK, well, we're going to return now um, to what's happening on the Turkish and Syrian border with those earthquakes and the, the startling and shocking number of dead that we are seeing now, 20,000 people who've died um, in that natural disaster and hopes have faded today of finding more survivors um, after the earthquake as the first UN aid reached Syrian rebel-held zones. And news correspondent Trent Murray sent us this update from the region tonight. Well, the fires have been lit here and the spotlights are being switched on and search and rescue crews are setting in for another long night, combing through the rubble of apartment buildings like the one you can see behind me. This is the fourth night in a row they are doing this. They are working around the clock, desperately trying to find anyone else that may be clinging to life under a collapsed building. What you can see behind me right now is an ongoing rescue. We understand that thermal imaging cameras have found someone still under the rubble there. Medical uh, people that we were speaking to here said they're not sure um, the state of the person, they're not getting any response from them, but they are still going to continue to dig desperately to try and pull them out. And so that is why you are seeing that vast uh, group of people, including military officials, police officers and paramedics all working together to delicately go through that building. This site also saw earlier today um, a, a rescue which really buoyed many of the 
the people here. It was a pregnant mother with her two children. They were able to be pulled out alive despite being under the rubble now for almost four days. Very sadly, one of the children succumbed to the injuries and died, but we understand that the mother, her other child and the bub are now all in a stable condition in hospital. It is those types of stories that are really fueling the effort here. There is just a, a massive search and rescue operation still underway, but of course the other big concern is the unfolding humanitarian crisis which is taking place here. So many of the buildings in the cities uh, like the one I'm in are just not safe to return to. They're structurally damaged and they could collapse if, if there's any further aftershocks. For that reason we've seen many families leave throughout the day just with a small bag of belongings that they've quickly run upstairs to grab and then pop in their car and to go and find safety in a nearby city, often setting up an emergency accommodation centre at places like universities or indoor football stadiums. Trent Murray, Virgin Media, Malatya, Turkey. And that's Trent bringing us a report um, from the quake zone, uh, the latest from there. Emma, to come to you on this, I think the images and, and what we have seen yep. from that devastated region are really something that have struck home with people. Um, especially there was one of a father holding his child's hand as she yeah. was trapped in the rubble, yeah. as attempts were made to remove her from there. But of course, you literally have an apartment building on top of her. Yeah. Like, uh, unbelievable, devastating, it I just think, to view. Really, really hit me, that image in particular. I think it was the first I'd seen on the papers the other morning. And um, he sits there, you know, so loyal, holding her hand as it appears from under the rubble and just uh, the devastation in his eyes. And obviously, too, the, the videos and the photos of, I think, their siblings, the little girl trying to protect her little brother's head. Um, it's just... It's, absolutely horrendous what's happened there and just goes to show how, how vulnerable we all are. It's so close to home. It's, you know, the first time in such a long time that something like this has happened. And as many are saying, the, another crisis begins right now with lack of running water um, with freezing temperatures and conditions and lack of food and, yeah. and everything. So, yeah, it doesn't... It's um, yeah, we've already heard from, from Syrian um, that the big cry out for medical aid um, because it's happening a region that's already devastated by war and mm -hmm. um, compounding all of this. Um, so really, I guess it's, it's up on a global level that, that we do something about this. Ireland uh, donating €2 million Euro there, but um, there will be calls as well to see what can be done politically or otherwise around sanctions, around aid, what can be done to help people in this region. Absolutely. And again, as mentioned earlier, with the likes of the lack of running water, like the, the potential of spread of disease and stuff, it's something that needs to be acted on very, very quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. OK, well, we're going to leave that there, but lots more coming up after this break, including other big stories of the week. Bertie Hearn's return. Do stay with us. A look at all the other big news stories. One in particular that former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern has rejoined the Fianna Fáil party. Um, to come to you on this, uh, Michael O'Regan, we heard tonight from Bertie Ahern that he has absolutely no need to rehabilitate himself um, coming back to the party. That's not his intention. It's not sackcloth and ashes now. He's back in the fold. Um, but what do you make of that? Do you feel that he has to um, do something? Do you believe that? 10 years on from his... It wasn't an expulsion. He, he chose to go before he was, he was dumped. But um, that he, he, he should rehabilitate himself. 
Well, he, he has to. He is rehabilitating himself. Uh, he would say that, wouldn't he, tonight? Uh, he but uh, he is rehabilitating himself, and of course, the Good Friday Agreement uh, is the way to do it. And he was the architect of that agreement. He deserves huge praise uh, for his input. I mean, not least on the evening of his mother's funeral, flying back to Belfast mm. for the talks. Uh, and this is why he's back in Fianna Fáil. It's the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. It would be an absurdity and look very bad for both Fianna Fáil and Mr Hearn if, as in the case tonight, uh, uh, a meeting about the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, if Mr Hearn was outside of the party. Because this was a Fianna Fáil Taoiseach who delivered on the Good Friday Agreement. There is no prospect here mm. so of be, running for the presidency. Would you believe, no. Sean, with all of this... Uh, oh, the presidency, yeah, we'll get on to that. Hmm. But all of this highly choreographed, if you like, it suits Fianna Fáil, do you believe? I mean, we had Jim O'Callaghan sort of announcing him um, at the event tonight. Was he a push from Jim? I mean, it was Micheál Martin, of course, who stood up and says, look, you know, we kind of can't have this in, in, in the party, and that's why uh, there are serious questions to be asked, and that's essentially why Bertie O'Hearn um, needs to go. Yeah. So, uh, 10 years is a long time. In is politics, everybody happy it? in the party? Uh, I, is look, a lot of people. The, I, I don't know how happy Michal Martin would be to have this landed on his doorstep, but a lot of people within Fianna Fáil are very happy to have him back in, and they seem to have, you know, remember his good deeds of the past and Good Friday, but don't remember those bad deeds quite so much, which I think the mood would be slightly different in the public. I think Michael's probably right, having him around for all those Fianna Fáil events and not being a member of the party probably would have been a bad look internally. But there seems to be the sense among some Fianna Fáil TDs that he is some sort of messiah riding back in that, you know, he's going to fix some of these ill fortunes, he's going to have a whisper in the ear of Micheál Martin or whoever the leadership is and suddenly fix everything. And I just, I don't think that's the case. It's a very, very different Fianna Fáil to what Bertie Ahern led in the past and a very different Fianna Fáil largely because of what Bertie Ahern did in the past and put the country and the party in the position that it's in now. Look, one of the things that is also being said, Emma, is that this is all teeing up for a run for the Auris in, in, in 2025, that this really is Bertie Ahern's aim. Um, as someone who'd be familiar uh, and a younger voter, do you believe um, that younger people would look at Bertie Hearn and, and associate him with the economic crash, with light touch regulation, with being in charge of a government that is seen accused of having no governance uh, to allow all of this catastrophe unfold and essentially leave people um, without um, a prospect of yeah. getting a house? Sean and I were just chatting. We, we would have finished college around the same year, 2013 or 2014. And like that is such a major association in our heads. Like when we came out to try and I certainly never wanted to emigrate. A lot of my friends did. I really wanted to build a future in Ireland. And I remember so well how bleak it was at that mm. time. And that still hasn't shaken from my psyche or my consciousness. And I know obviously now the, 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 the outlook isn't the most hopeful for young people in Ireland either when it comes to, you know, how, how, the housing crisis and all that kind of stuff too. But certainly then it was a grim outlook and but we lost, a lot of people are still abroad because of that time, you know. A huge amount of people. Like, it was such a defining part of us growing up as well because yeah. when I started to become politically aware and started thinking of it, it was around 2008 banking crisis. It was around Mahan Tribunal. It was recession. It was austerity. It was all that sort of stuff and it stemmed from those Fianna Fáil days. I'm not so sure I agree with you, Michael, though. I think he will test the waters about 2025. I think, as you say, there is a bit of rehabilitation going on. I think probably he wouldn't get the nomination, but he is certainly testing it out and hasn't ruled it out over the last couple of days. You don't yeah. think he'd get the nomination, Michael? No, well, like, what are, he, he what are your views on his hopes? Mr Hearn is an experienced politician. He would have no hope of getting the nomination for a start. But look, every retired politician likes a bit of uh, complimentary speculation about his or her future. And uh, 
actually, one of his comments tonight in that doorstep interview going into the uh, meeting was quite self, it was self-deprecation. He said, to listen to some of the stuff today, you think I was after my old job. Hmm. He'll be a member of Fianna Fáil in the Dublin Central constituency, perhaps available to knock on doors at the next election, available for advice in the Good Friday Agreement. That's where it would begin and end. Right. OK, well, we'll see about that, because things, things can also change. <laughs> I leave my change. words in this studio if I'm you wrong. You could well be see doing that. OK, <laughs> let's talk um, about Burp. Bert Bacharach, at the age of 94, um, the singer and songwriter, has passed away. Um, and, you know, to come to him, Emma, like, so many hits, so many songs that became iconic hits sung by the likes of um, Dusty Springfield, Aretha Franklin, uh, the Beatles. We'd, of course, like, say a little prayer, Aretha Franklin, everyone will know, walk on by. Such beautiful songs yeah. that actually, you know, span generations, really, in their appeal. Absolutely, and it's funny that you mentioned that because, to be totally honest with you, earlier on when I saw the name, it was like familiar, but not as familiar as it should have been, considering like the mass devastation and, and, and his legacy over 500 songs. And as soon as I went to my Spotify, I was like, oh my god, of course, oh my god, of course, oh my god, of course. And um, you know, a slight bit of research and, and to see the kind of impact that his music has had over such a long span and the diversity of artists he's worked with as well. Uh, a team up with Dr. Dre that I wasn't aware of at one point. Apparently, he taught Dr. Dre to play the piano back in 2008 or something like that. Just incredible. And to be honest, on the back of learning so much already today, I, I can't wait to learn more. And the, the movies that his, his music featured in so prominently as well. Yeah, resonates so much with people. Mm. Um, fortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. That is all we have time for tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. My thanks to Michael, to Sean and to Emma. From all the late team here, good night and do take care.